Fun talking with Rick and Rose from the Poster Children, DaleWileyShow.com. Because there was something in the water in Springfield, Missouri. Hey, don't forget me. I'm Brenda Lee, and we're all going to have fun tonight on Ozark Jubilee. Podcast hosted by music fan and the founder of Slewfit Records, Mr. Dale Wiley. Hello, are you guys on the phone? I think so. Can you hear us? I can hear you fine. Wow, How great. Are you today? One, two. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. Today I'm talking to Rick Valentin and Rose Marshak of the poster children. And so I just want to ask first, how did you first get interested in music? You I, go first, Rick. No, I think you should go first since you probably got interested earlier. Than I, I first got interested <laughs> in music. I, I wouldn't say, so I'm, this is funny because we have kids that we're forcing to, to practice violin all the time, right? Right. There we and go. They don't, they don't want to, so, but that doesn't right. matter. None of that <laughs> yeah. matters. If you have a child and you're forcing them to, to play an instrument. And there are some parents who are like, well, my kid didn't want to, and I didn't want to force it on them like they were forced on me. For right. me, I, I want to force it on them. So when I, I, don't, <laughs> yes. I don't know if I've ever been interested in music at all. So I'll, really? I'll talk to Rick then. No, I'm just <laughs> no, so I, I, was, I was forced to play you know, piano and violin uh, when I was very very young, starting, starting Where was that? Age Where four. Where was that? The north suburbs of Chicago. Okay. In my All parents' right. house. So I was, right. you know, I was forced to take piano lessons and violin lessons, classical music lessons. And then, you know, I went in the orchestra when I was a little kid. And, you know, and then I think I, I played in the orchestra at University of Illinois. So I, that's, yes. that was good doing that and, and, you know, not being a music major. Um, but I would say that I became interested in music probably my senior year of high school when I heard okay. uh, the Sex Pistols and the Buzzcocks and, uh, okay. <laughs> and, uh, the and then I became interested. Right. And so that was your first thing that led you, did it lead you to think you want to be in a band? No, no. I The reason I joined... Uh, the band was the Rick was in a band, um, and right. we were both living in the dorms at Allen Hall. And his their bass player kept quitting, and I felt really bad for them, you know, because their bass player kept quitting. So I was like, hey, you know what? Right. If, if you want, I'll <laughs> step in when your bass player's not, you know, when when he's in the in the time when he doesn't want to be in the band, then I'll I'll just step in and play bass. And everybody thought that was a fine idea, except Rick. Okay, what did you think, Rick? Well, she had never played bass before, but um, okay. everybody else in the band, <laughs> Not a big she, deal. Rose liked cool music and had perfect pitch. And so they were like, right. she, she can play bass. And I was like, well, we should probably get somebody who's played bass before. But I, I was wrong. When <laughs> <laughs> did you first get interested in music? Yes. Rick? It's such a good Tell question. Tell me about that, Rick. Yes. I, well, no, I, I think I was an AM radio kid, and so I really liked uh music listening to music and then i had the same not the same experience as rose i i was a saxophone student i guess in uh junior high and high school and then i remember i had a saxophone teacher a private teacher and i go to his house and he would teach me saxophone and i remember one day his daughter was uh upstairs and i could hear that she was watching the monkeys like a rerun yes. in, uh in the afternoon and i remember thinking boy i would rather be watching the monkeys than playing the saxophone. <laughs> that was it. Pretty soon after that, I, I remember also the reason why I talk about the poor saxophone teacher is that I, I had to tell him at some point, I said, I don't think 
I want to do this anymore. I'm I'm going to play guitar. And he was like, okay. Wait, so you had to tell <laughs> your parents? Your parents didn't didn't do that for you? No. I mean, they were paying for the lessons, but I... <laughs> you know, my mom would drop me off at this guy's house, and I'd go in and play the saxophone for a half hour, hour, and then she'd come pick me up. And so there was... Yeah, they did not interact. Wow, yeah. that's kind of weird, though, right? I mean, I'm sure, you know... Is that what great. your... So your piano lessons when no, you were I, a kid, I, yeah. your, your mom was always there? Um... No, yeah. no, but there would be there would be a new piano teacher like all right. of a sudden nowhere. You're not this is your new piano teacher and I'd be like, "What?" Okay. <laughs> and then there would be another new this is your new piano teacher. Oh, okay, what happened? The other one got pregnant? No, it was a man. I don't know what happened. <laughs> Something happened that to one of them that I wasn't able to find out about. And it, it had to do with like something that a young a young girl shouldn't know about, wow. I guess. Right. <laughs> but yes. but no, I was never in charge of like I, I could never say no, I don't want this anymore. Oh no, I had told my parents I had said, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't I don't think I want to play saxophone right. anymore. And then it's like, well, you're gonna have to tell. <laughs> That's so what so. I'm talking about. Yeah. Your parents are you, you have to tell. <laughs> I, I did that to, to Graham and Dow too. I was like, if you're not gonna practice the violin you're going to tell Francis that you're not going to play anymore. No, no, I would never want to do that. That's great. You, right. had, the, you had the guts to tell. Did you tell him you, want, you would rather watch the monkeys with no. his daughter? No, okay, I, good. I wasn't. That, wasn't it, yeah, no, it wasn't that. It was just that I could hear the theme song from the monkeys playing. It was like, I see. Oh. Well, it's, it's just more like, the I like this. Monkeys don't need a saxophone player. But, you know. The monkeys the are great. Yeah, and 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 I liked early rock and roll, so the saxophone yes. was part of that. I don't know why I didn't continue. And it was the early 80s, so the saxophone, that was, you know, when the saxophone was popular again. I don't know why right. I didn't just go with the saxophone as my... Are you sad that you quit the saxophone? Because if you're not, you're like the only person in history who's not sad. Oh, I wish my parents had made me practice. Well, it's right. a, there's a deep thing in that. I lent that saxophone to <laughs> right. a friend in high school, and he never gave it back. And my mom was pretty upset about that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. And I'm upset were about it. Chicago, too, I would have from it. Yeah. Yeah. I was in the suburbs, the s southwest suburbs of Chicago. Okay. We're both, right. we're both you guys, privileged areas. You guys met at the university, then. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. And what was that experience like being in the university before you started a band? Mm -hmm. That's a very thought-provoking question. Where, yeah, you were, <laughs> yes. you've got some great stories about being bullied by your roommates and stuff. It was just, I, I think it's overwhelming for everyone, but especially back then, you, again, right. kind of be dropped off and then you wouldn't see your family for until Thanksgiving. And so that was intense. Right. And it wasn't like you had email and you could email your, your family. It's like you'd talk to them on the phone once a week or something at oh, most. Oh, yeah, totally. And so that's what I remember is before I fell in with um, people who liked this. And, yeah, when I first showed up, Rose was one of the few people who listened to cool music. Um, uh, you're, it, Rick and, was a year after me. Yeah, so I showed up okay. a year later, and it was like I had I, – my roommate was someone I went to school with, went to high school and junior high with. Uh -huh. And uh, so he kind of liked the same music I did, but then I, I thought I was going to go to college and I was going to like, oh, I'm going to be, finally, I'm going to hang out with people who like cool music. And I was like, no, right. <laughs> and, and nobody else. And then another, a year later, um, the cool kids came, yeah, right? Yeah. For us. Yeah. Kids, <laughs> yes. you're, you're yeah. After me, they all showed up, the people who liked the kind what? of music. So Rose what was really that, what qualified yeah. as cool music. Um, so this, this was not the police. Well, no, the, right. the, um, so for me, it was, so the thing that really, I was crestfallen when I came to the dorms and everyone was cranking rush and, and I, right. I haven't been yes. rush now, but, but in the early eighties, it represented a certain sort of era of music. Demographic. Yes. Yeah, and it was like I thought, oh, I go to college and I'll be listening. You know, everybody will be listening to, you know, like what, like the Jam or uh, um, 
this is a little before Husker Du and the Minutemen. Actually, Buzz. the Husker Du Minutemen yeah, thing was... Yeah, that was going on going 1985, on, right? right? Before 85, yeah. 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 So it yeah. was the replacement, stuff like that, where it was like, oh, uh, I'm going to college and I'm, I'm going to, you know, there's going to be a college radio station gonna and everyone's yeah. going to be listening yeah. to this cool music. And it was like, you no. You went to the wrong college. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. It no. took a while to yeah. find all those people. Yeah, yeah and, you were ahead of your time. I, and, it, and that's the thing is a lot of people we knew later on in the music scene that like I was in a film class I think my freshman year with uh, um, a guy who, who he would always show up in class yeah he'd yeah. show up in class and he'd be like half awake and he'd fall asleep on his desk and then I remember going out on the quad one night on a Saturday night and there was a band playing and he was there he was playing guitar and I was like I get it he's the reason why he's, well, probably not the only reason, but the reason why he's always, like, dead in school is because he's playing shows. He's in a Every band. Every night. Right. Oh, I have, sure. a good, yeah. I have a good, I have a good uh, story, though. You asked what it was like before being in a band in college, and yes. I have a great, I have a great sure. story. So I was in a group of people before Rick came who, we were geeks, okay? I had, uh-huh. I, I wore a Doctor Who scarf that I knitted myself. This was before. <laughs> really? It was cool wow. before. Well, it was cold out, and so you could wrap it around your, your head. But but so I we we would be in the lunchroom at Allen Hall, and like these other kids would come, like the the sophomores would come, and we'd have to run away really fast because they were going to yell "geek" at us, even though we, we should have. And I remember, like I came into this group; they were a year older than me, and I was like, "Well, guys, we are geeks, right? So just let us <laughs> yes. You don't understand. It hurts when they say that to us, right?" Um, and so, uh, you know, so, so like they'd see them coming and they'd be like, it's time to go. Let's go. Let's go. And, and I hear like, I'd linger and then I'd hear geek. And after like three or four times, I'd be like, run, you know, I'd run away. Cause I didn't want to be called. <laughs> anyway, fast forward like a year or two or three that these kids were still in, you know, still here. And I remember right. I was standing on, on the, for quad fest, I was standing on a stage in the quad holding my awesome G3 bass, and we were playing right. a show. I didn't have my Doctor Who scarf. I was standing there with a bass, <laughs> like a cool punk rock skirt on, and yes. I saw the leader of the, the guys screaming geek, and I was like, hey, motherfucker, here I, oh, can I swear on your... <laughs> go you ahead, go ahead, that. swear away. And I was like, you come up and look at me, and you know, now I'm, I'm holding a bass, and I'm so cool. And he came <laughs> up and saw me, and our eyes made contact, and you know what happened? He yelled, geek! Really? Yeah, I was like, I I felt bad. So I can tell that story. But then, well, now, now kids have a totally different association with that word. It's not as bad as it was, I think. Yeah, that's the thing is, you know, being into cool music, comic books, sci fi movies, all that stuff now. Everybody's just like, oh, that's just mainstream culture. Okay, is it, or are we just no, more secure with ourselves? It's no. mainstream culture. Yeah, it's is that it's because definitely it's more mainstream, definitely. Well, Doctor the way Who that is... my kids see it, and Doctor Who definitely. Yeah, yeah. So cool. Well, that's good. So, so tell me how the poster children came to be. Well, Rose and I were in bands. Multiple, like, yeah, so that first band. In the dorms. She joined, yeah, in the dorms. What was that uh-huh. called? Cries and Whispers? Yeah. Named after a movie you probably watched with Charlie in that and film then, class. In that film class, yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, there was, oh, and then, uh, then, you and then the next year, yeah, yeah. uh, we started a band with just, with. Just the two of us me and a drummer, and yeah. A, and, and yeah. Rose and a drummer. So that was, right. the next year was another band called the, the Evidence. Evidence. And then the year okay. after that. We, we threw that drummer out. Or he, got, he, yeah, he, he wasn't allowed to play his drums play, anymore. Because his grades were bad, I believe. Okay. And then, um, uh, we, yeah, we got a, uh, another drummer, and then that was, we changed the name of the band to Poster Children. And that was the last time okay. we changed And them. then after that, we realized, oh, we got to stop changing the name every time. <laughs> yes. we the band. Some people never stop that, though. That's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> so. And, why the yeah. poster children? What what about it stuck? That's a good name, by the way. It, it was the drummer. So Shannon was the first drummer, and he suggested it. it. Was I think it was Labor Day weekend, so the Jerry Lewis telethon was on, and so right. the, I think that was all just floating around in his head. And he said, "What about poster children?" And we're like, "Yeah, that sounds good." Yeah, it stuck. <laughs> and so, 
did you get what was the first what was the first gig like what was that was it different or was it the same beat and bands and all that I would that have been like at Allen Hall or what, what or well, yeah, I mean, we were probably yeah. cries and whispers at Allen Hall so poster children I, this is written in your your history says that our first gig was with hardcore Barbie I think at Chins and the second was at Phyllis's Musical Inn in Chicago. Yeah, so that's the thing, too, is Wait, was we Matt... had already been in bands for two or three years, so we right. had already been playing shows. And so, yeah, our first poster children's show under that name would have been at the, the small club. Like, Flaming Lips played there. I'm trying to think of right. who else. Like, but a really super tiny small, club. Like, 50 people, sure. 30 to 50 yeah. people. And, and so we, uh, we played our first show there, but then that was the exciting thing, is that our second show was in Chicago, which had never we had never played outside of right. our town. Right. And so that that was by luck of it. Um, there was a club. There's still. Well, maybe I, I'm not sure how things are oh, in the past God. couple of months, but yeah. at least since <laughs> last. I actually played a show there in last October. Phyllis's musical in my dad was Phyllis's dentist. So okay. that's, that's, well, that's cool. Her, and my dad uh, is a is a jazz trumpet player. Her so. son, Phyllis's son, ran the club by then and was booking shows and and <laughs> somehow dad. Yeah. We have to ask him what he had yeah. to say to Clem. He may not remember. That was, yeah. yeah you know, over what, though, the type of stuff that he does remember all the time. Like, he'll remember that. He may remember that. Or he'll he'll tell us kind of what he would have had to have said. Yeah, and so right. that's how we right. got our first Chicago show. And that, that kind of set the ball rolling where we were like, oh, wait a minute. We can, we can play other places besides just in town. Yeah. I remember yeah. playing at Phyllis's to, like, I remember there were 12 people and I was like, there's 12 people here. Oh my God. And then like the next time we came, you know, I was, this is incredible. Why are these right, 12 people right. here? This is fantastic. And then the next time we came back, there was like 18 or something. And I was like, that's even more than 12. This is incredible. You know, and that like the whole, seems like the whole poster children, like, like in, unless I was crying because I played badly or I thought I played badly, it was always right, like, right. there's people here. But, so how did you then get a record to come out? How did that happen? Ah, oh, that's a good question. That took a while. Yeah, yeah. Many like so so we were saving up money to record. Well right. it was first of course. recording. We were recording like So we wrote a bunch right? of songs. We were yeah. playing shows as poster children and then so that right. that year that we changed our name, we started playing Chicago and then we made a cassette tape, a four track, a friend of ours who was also wound up doing a lot of our booking and everything like that early on, Chris, and then another guy, Jim, uh, ran a cassette label. So basically they <laughs> cassette were... cassette label. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they had it they had a four-track recorder. Trash Can Records. Yeah, and so really? we recorded uh, yeah. a four-track cassette called Torridor Squat that... Um, yes. Sold, yeah, we sold a lot of copies in Champaign, and then when we were playing right. shows in Chicago, we yeah. may have gone to... I don't know if we had gone to Iowa by then or Minneapolis, but we, we were probably had, yeah, starting yeah. to pass around this cassette. And then um, another band, um, the Digits, who are, you know, originally from Mattoon, Illinois, but they yeah. uh, had moved, at least some of them had moved to Champaign, and the Digits had recorded um, in Chicago with Ian Burgess, who had recorded Naked Ray Gun and We Big were Black. huge right. fans of all those yeah. bands. So and we were like, so, yeah. we want to record with them. So it was more like... Let's save up money to record with those guys, and then let's see what happens. And that's what we did. Right. So um, the digits said, oh, yeah, this is Ian's number. You just call him up, and you give him money, and then you go out, you know, in one day, or no, two days over a weekend <laughs> at, at Chicago Recording Company, which was a beautiful, still is a beautiful recording studio, like where Love Roller Coaster was recorded. But it, at the time, it was a commercial, like they were doing jingles and everything during the week, and then the weekend it would be dead, and so they'd rent it out, and, and people like Ian could um, make records over a weekend in this right. amazing studio, and that's what we did, is we went in there and spent two days recording, one day recording, and one day mixing a record. Yeah, and, and so then we, had, we, had, we had tapes. <laughs> we had tapes, so then we kept playing the show. But we didn't have enough money to put out a record, yeah, because we, right. we'd already... Right. Rose, Rose was the one who ponied up the cash for Did for I? the recording. Yeah, okay, good. And then, but then it was like wow. that was, like, I don't know, a thousand dollars or something to record with Ian or fifteen hundred. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, to make a record again before CDs, cassettes. You could do right. cassettes. 
but you can't you can't make vinyl cheap. That was still is yeah. really expensive. Years so, later, yeah. Yeah, we had no way of doing that and didn't have the money for that. And so we had that first version of the band. We had all that. Um, we recorded, I don't know, 15 songs, I think. Yeah, and then somebody came up to us after we played at, at a Metro show. I remember Mike Potential, right? Um, unless you want to talk about Barry I feel Bonham. like it was Batteries Not Included. Oh, oh okay. I don't know if oh. we had even played the Metro yet. I Wow, I feel like it was a Metro show. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, maybe, it was, maybe, maybe it was batteries not included. Maybe you're right. Um, you might know. Yeah, yeah. We should find out because I'm writing about it. But right. um, yeah, he came up and and said, you know, hey, you know, we I would like to put out your record, and we we're like, awesome, we have a record here. We'll give it to you. Right. Right. Is that well, that was it. But the thing is, is we we were already on to our next drummer and hadn't changed the name of our bands, and we had new songs with the new drummer, and right. he right. liked those too, and so. Uh, same thing kind of happened. The Digits had just recorded a record with Steve Albini, or at least a single. We wanted to be the Digits. And so it was like Steve, <laughs> Steve had just built a studio in his house in a track. I think it was the Digits had recorded a single with Steve. I think that was one of the first things he recorded at his house. And so again, through the Digits, we, we talked to Steve and spent Oh, I have the bill for that. It's 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 like a couple hundred dollars to record. $250 according to your history. <laughs> to to record five <laughs> songs with him at his house and then we took eight songs from the year before that we recorded with Ian and eight songs or no, four songs from when we recorded with Ian and four songs that we recorded with Steve, put them on a mini LP vinyl and uh, uh, Mike Potential put that out and that's and then That was Flower Plower. And then later on Wow. wow. Flower Plower has all the other Ian Burgess stuff on it, so, but originally it was just eight songs, and now it's, right, I don't know, right. 15 or 16 songs. Yeah, a couple of years later, Steve Albini called me and said, you know, I just noticed the second L in Flower Plower. He, he thought it was Flower Power. <laughs> really? Still really? Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, he thinks we're hippies, but he wouldn't have thought that. <laughs> so tell me about the, so when did you get on, when did you get signed to Sire? How did that work? That was a few years later. So we, Mike I, Potential I, I, put out Flower Plower. I just want to correct right. you that a person doesn't get signed. A person signs too. Okay. 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 Sorry. It, it does sound like a victimization, um, and it is. But we, you, you sign. You don't get signed. Okay, okay. that's good. Go on, point. Go on, Rick. <laughs> All right. So, so Mike, Mike Potential put out that that the Flower Plower record, and we did a short tour out east. Um, with a great band, uh, Thin White Rope played in New York, got, got a little bit of press. Some guy from, uh, <laughs> some guy came up to our merch table and, and told our guitarist at the time, Hey, I, I, give me a free tape. I write for Rolling Stone. Hey, give, give me a, a free copy of your record. We were like and, sitting in the van later and he's like, I gave away one of our, one of our, it was a tape. I gave away a tape, at, you know, instead uh -huh. of charging the guy $5. And we were like, what? And he said, well, he said he worked for Rolling Stone. And we we're like, you stupid, you know, uh, hillbilly, you know, people <laughs> yes. are like hillbillies. We're coming, you know, they're going to take advantage of us, the big New York people. But then. Right. You know, uh, like a month later, there was a short blurb about us in Rolling, Rolling Stone. Stone. <laughs> so, yeah. So that, that was real. And um, so uh, we got a little bit of attention for that. And then we uh, had been playing uh, Minneapolis a lot and Twin Tone Records was there. And so yes. Twin Tone Records was a label we loved. And so we. Um, and our booking agent, we got a booking agent and she worked in the offices of Twin Tone. She rented a space in there. And so, um, we became familiar with, they, they were familiar with us, Twin Tone and we kept had driving. seen us played a lot. Yeah, yeah. We would drive and, up to Minneapolis. We would play, that was nine hours. We'd play for $50 and then we would drive home and to, we would drive back and park in the parking lot of work and go back to work as flight simulator really? pro. Wow. Yeah. $50. And I remember other people going, you know, I remember, I remember people complaining, we drove like three hours and we only got paid 50 bucks. And I was like, we're driving nine hours, coming back, going straight to work for $50. And I'm right. as, as, ha as they say, happy as a clam. I'm thrilled about this. <laughs> that is how we ended up signing to Twin Tone. We kind of proved okay. that we had a had a, a, you know, a work ethic, I think. Yeah, and so yeah. it was another year, another drummer, and actually we went through two drummers during that process, and, and uh, again, uh, originally we were going to 
we wanted to work with Butchvig. Uh, we made demos for Daisy Chain Reaction with Steve and sent them to Butch. And Butch we said... We wanted to work... Oh, go on. And Butch said, yeah, we wanted to work at... Uh, what's the studio? Well, Smart Studios. Yeah. Well, we wanted and to work with Butch Fig because we liked... Um, what is that band? Decreutzen. <laughs> well, Mike Potential. That's the thing wow. is everybody talks about how, oh, you know, Smashing Pumpkins, you know, loved whatever. And it was like Mike Potential, you know, put out the first Smashing Pumpkins single, too. Right. And so yes. um, Mike Mike was just constantly like, you got to listen to this Decreutzen record. You got to listen to this... Uh, Killdozer record, that's, so he was really, really, Killdozer. yeah, really, really into Mike. Mike is kind of an un, unsung hero of of that that scene, that kind of Chicago um, scene. Right. And that was, he's, I, I would say, he's responsible for kind of linking um, the Pumpkins and, and Butch Vig. But anyways, Butch Vig listened to the demos we recorded with Steve, and he kind of said, "Well, this already sounds pretty good. <laughs> why, why do you need me <laughs> really? to do this?" And then we wound up doing the same thing as we, uh, had, uh, we had recorded at Steve's house, but then we went to Chicago Recording Company, uh, the summer, in the summertime and did the same thing we did with Ian, which is spent, well, we spent two weekends and made a record. Um, used some of the demos actually, like If You See K, the song on Daisy Tune Reaction is actually recorded in Steve's basement on an eight track recorder rather than in the big giant uh, fancy studio. So some of some of Daisy Chain Reaction is is did uh, we go into eight tracks into Steve's basement before, like right before we did? Like, did we do demos or something? We did demos in the Daisy spring, Chain? and then we recorded oh, the album okay. in the summer. Oh, then, unfortunately, what happened was is uh, Twin Tone ran into distribution problems, ran out of right. money, and it took them a year to put out the record. So Daisy Chain Reaction didn't come out until um, nineteen ninety one, okay. uh, and the summer of 1991 and we were already we were playing shows i think we had been out east again and we were already talking to record labels so we had talked to somebody at sire we had talked to somebody at atlantic and somebody at columbia records right. and they so they they were interested in indie rock bands they were like oh okay this this is kind of like oh they're like they're bands the like soul Style yes. and the replacements and sonic youth oh and who's gonna do they're they're these weird indie bands that can go up a little more and so that was right, the summer right. of 1991. And then finally, Twin Tone got the record out. And a rough trade went under. So yeah, you couldn't, yeah. get, our, you couldn't get our record out. The anywhere. record came out. We went on tour. And uh, the day, I think the day, one of the day, like the day or two before we left on tour, Nirvana Nevermind came out. And so by the time. We had a cassette tape of it. And I remember we were like, oh, should we sign to a major label? Because this sucks being on this indie and nobody can get our record. Right. Maybe we right. should say we can't get off this indie and go to another indie because we still owe that indie two records. Right. So right. we did a test, right? We were like, well, let's see if, if being on Geffen kills Nirvana. Like, let's, it didn't, <laughs> didn't come until much later. Um, but yeah, by the end, so we started a six week tour of the United States. We quit our jobs. We're like, okay, we're going to do the indie rock thing. And then at the end of six weeks, we'll go and beg for our jobs back, right? Right. And. Right. So we, we leave from Champaign, and then by the time we hit San Francisco, yeah, never mind, story, had yeah. exploded, yeah. you know, it was, was this huge thing. And so by the time we hit New York City, where all, a lot of the record labels were. Um, we had tons of label interests. We had 15 interest, labels yeah. that were interested in us, as wow. opposed to the well, three. But, um, and so, and then we got, a, actually in the middle of that tour, we got a call and said, do you want to open for the Buzzcocks for two weeks? And we were like, yeah, sure. And so we got to do that. Right. And then we went home and then we had to make a decision, like, what do we want to do? And, and it was like, okay, there's a problem with Twin Tone not being able to get, keep the record in stores and everything like that. And so we decided we were going to sign to a major label. And so we had a choice of 15 labels, but um, Sire was one of the ones that was there before the whole Nirvana thing happened. So right. we kind of said, and that was a label that meant a lot to me, just sort of yeah, historically. Definitely. Oh, yeah, definitely. And that wound up kind of tipping it in that favor, whereas like Joe, who's the A&R guy at, at Sire, was already talking to us a year before, <laughs> you know, all of right. this craziness happened, you know, so it was like, oh, okay, this is the kind of thing where somebody was interested in the band before everyone was interested in any uh, grunge exactly. band, right? Yes. You know? And so, and that's, that's what happened is, and then what happened is, is uh, we signed to Sire and they re-released Daisy Chain Reaction so it could get into stores and everything like that. Right. And again, that was a good time, you know, to be on 
the scene and I just I just am so interested in you know not only what you guys have done since then but like how you managed to turn your careers into I mean I really think that you guys have have led a really cool indie life shall we say yeah, I'm, I'm, and I'm kind of reviewing this part of our history, um, and looking at like the tour reports that I wrote and, and, you know, just when we started our podcasts and all that stuff. And I'm right. realizing that like all that stuff happened like after we ended, after we left the, the major label. So, you know, when we right. signed to Sire, we knew that we were going to not be on Sire after a while. Exactly. We had a deal and we knew, we knew. And, and so every single choice that we made was for to, was for longevity for us. Well, what was the word you used? The better word than that, Rick. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, just I, just looking to the future. I have every single choice. So well, just making sure that the band wasn't dependent on on the label. That the, the choices we made were were for the band rather than sort of for the moment. So and, you know, we would get we got money, and so instead of buying like a car or something, we bought computers and recording yes. equipment. Entirely. We knew that, yeah, like we wanted control and wanted to be be able to grow up and and leave the label and be fine. Afterwards. We also we also paid our rent and everything like that. We didn't buy a car because yeah. and and it was like oh if we're going to be home, you know we we should be writing music as a you know that was a, a great thing about living in a college town. But it was also like we had seen in the past people would sign to a major label and they would you know you might get seventy five thousand dollars as a signing bonus, right? And everybody goes, right. oh, that's amazing, $75,000, but you cut that into five pieces, right? Yeah, Four members lawyer. of a band. Yeah, the lawyer. Oh, lawyer, yeah. And Let's the not manager. even talk about the lawyer yeah. and the manager. It's like 15000 yes. bucks a person. For a year. For a year, two years. You yeah. know, it's not that much it's money. And money. so we did a lot of math. We paid attention and we realized, okay, well, how can we make sure that we don't get ourselves into a situation where we can't... Uh, we can't do this because we've become accustomed <laughs> to a different way of, yeah, of definitely and playing and, and expectations. Right. Right. And you know, I'm thinking, I was thinking about this, Rick, like, so on, on the label, um, the label already knew that like, you know, what the future was going to hold for them. Right. I mean, people were already starting to rip CDs at that time. So they already, they were starting to do experiments with, with like, um, enhanced CDs and stuff. Do you remember? And they had like, they, they gave, they gave us a lot of, I got a lot of opportunity. You know, I got to, I, I got to make like a friend's TV sampler and an interactive discs and stuff for, for, uh, reprise they would like trade me they'd like buy me a new camera or something if i okay. did some work for them and i think i mean i they do you remember because i was reading my tour report here we went to the warner brothers compound and we got to go and we got to talk to the apple people who were there the QuickTime vr person stuff like so so we were kind of we 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 got into their their sort of lab their their sort of you know future lab and stuff and we got we had a lot of opportunities and because of that because we made our own enhanced CDs and stuff like that I think we learned new media from that from those experiences yeah and I I, I see the, the completely opposite direction where it was like they there were people at the label calling you up asking for help and asking you questions about the web and everything like that and it seems like it wasn't that they were. Um, showing well, us I knew about this the web. magical stuff. Right. It was kind of like we had, because we had a computer science background, we yeah. were, and right. we were lit in Champaign-Urbana, where like Mosaic, one of the first sort of functional browsers. Yeah. web browsers was created and everything like that. We were in a, a very special area in terms of kind of right before the web exploded. And, so, and we had we were primed and we understood the technology and everything like that. Remember that so. that's not the same thing as interactive um, stuff. So, so yeah. programming and, and, in director or whatever, you know, interactive language uh, is, was, was different to me than, than the web stuff. And what I was going to say too, is the uh, Warner brothers reprise sire that it was kind of this huge conglomerate. They had a, a, a weird alternative marketing department within them. And so for us, one thing that helped us is that, and this is the kind of thing that no longer exists and, and stopped existing at, at major labels 20 years ago. Exactly. Um, they, they had a small group of people who had worked at independent record stores, who had worked at independent, you know, college radio stations and everything like that. And it was kind of like a miniature indie, independent label 
inside Warner Brothers. So bands like us would get um, special treatment from them because the the people who were promoting, you know, the Madonna record or whatever, really, you know, didn't understand us. You know, to, the, right? You know, just talking again. I'll mention the Flaming Lips, like talking to their manager and him. You know, just trying to navigate that world of trying to get the people the big time people at the label, you know, to even listen to that band and, and like how much work and effort went on behind the scenes. It wasn't that there were like two people who were like, this is the most amazing band in the world. And then everybody else at the label was like, how many records do they sell? Right. And so now you look back and you go, well, it's obvious the flaming lips were amazing. And it's like, no, right. It was somebody years, literally years of work to get through to those people. And so that was the advantage is, is that they had this whole little miniature, independent label within the major label with people who liked alternative music and promoted it and helped us out. So when we were selling a small number of records compared to Madonna, there was at least someone who cared about us. And so that, that helped a lot too, is that we, I think we chose right. But unfortunately, if you've ever seen the, uh, uh, Wilco documentary, right? It's, <laughs> yes, it's they, were, they were in that same system. And so that, that, that weirdness that they were experiencing that's when all those basically it was like, well, we can't afford to do this anymore. We can't afford to market these right. these bands that only sell a hundred thousand records. You go, oh my god, that's an amazing <laughs> yes. nowadays, especially. But like at the time, it was like, oh, this is nothing, right? Nobody cared, and and it was like we don't we don't want to deal with that. We don't want to finance that anymore, and everything like that. So I think that was one of the reasons that kind of helped us survive is that we understood who we were and what we wanted to do. And then on top of it, there were actually people at the label who cared, which yeah, is the big problem yeah. with major labels is a lot of people think, oh, they're going to change your sound. They're going to change everything. But really, honestly, it's indifference. It, they've got so many right. artists and, and it's really just, oh, if one artist shows promise, everybody just all of a sudden goes there and, yes. you know, connects to that artist and tries to promote them because it's going to mean their career. Right. And right. so, I, I think that's the the strange thing is like when you and I've talked to in the past I've talked to bands who have signed to major labels and they're like they they want they don't like the songs and they want me to do this and everything like that and it's like wow well at least they're paying attention but for most, a lot of times it's like we're on a major label now we got to do this we got to change I got to do this I got to do that is is people have some preconceived notions and then at some point they realize oh wait a minute we're just here for a short period of time and. Nobody cares. <laughs> right. It's not even, That's it's so not right. that it's, there's, there's such, I, I have in my mind right now a radio playlist because radio was the only way that people would find out about you. Only right. radio and only the K Rock and the, like the biggest radio stations. And they had a playlist that had something like five songs for heavy rotation seven for medium rotation and 14 for light rotation. Now add that up and then think about all the releases every week, all the releases that your record label had. And then all the release, you know, all the releases that Sire had, all the releases that Warner brothers had, all the releases that Columbia had, all the releases that Sony had and, and all the other labels. And those, those releases are fighting for those, you know, 10 slots. Yes. That can, and that's that week. And then next week, there's more releases. So, right. <laughs> I mean, you know, they, they could love us all they want, but 0 for 1 is not going to get played over, like, I don't know, whatever fucking, I don't, whatever got played that, you know, whatever they tried to push, because they would, that would sever a radio person at the label's um, relationship with the program director at the radio, right, right at the yes. radio station. No, they need to, they, so there is a finite amount of slots and, you know, and there's, there was too many, too many, you know, blocks to put in the slots. And we never tried to get our block in the slot either. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like, Hey, here's a song called music of America. It's totally anti, anti radio. Here's a, you weren't playing the game for sure. No, no. Yeah, we weren't. But anyway, I don't, no, I don't actually, follow Yeah. I kind of think that, you know, in doing these interviews, I also just see how, because as I see it, you guys had the perfect perspective because you were ahead of the time and yet you were doing the right thing. You had the right budgeting and everything else. It's the thing that 
it's just a different mindset than everybody else had. Yeah, the, the rock and roll dream is very, very powerful. And right. it's also difficult to talk about this because, you know, I, I mean, somebody might be listening to this going, oh, well, it's just sour grapes and everything like that. And, and, and it's the uh, opposite, the, though. I don't think yeah, that at all. Yeah, but that dream is really powerful if you, you know, um, and, and so people don't necessarily, even people who are not musicians and, and not, you know, out there trying to work as a professional musician, they, the, the, it just in, in passing, it's like, oh, you are on a major label. Oh, that must have been great. All this stuff. And, and, oh, you must be so cool and you must be doing drugs all the time and everything. <laughs> like, I was like, yes. oh, no. I, <laughs> I don't know how you would be able to do that if and and do a tour and well, you know you drive a, your own van. You need you know? a tour man. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, but right, the, yeah. but the thing is, is that the pe- the dream and the kind of the reality yeah, is yeah. so powerful that that people and and even musicians, even when you're in it, right? Sometimes you don't they don't see it. They don't see. Oh wait, you're doing the exact thing that uh, you saw other people do, and maybe you even became a musician to react against you know the, right. those kind of rock and roll stardom mythology kind of things and yet you're you're following those same things because it's just such a powerful sort of fiction that that's that's part of it it's show business i guess so but but for us since we came from this more indie rock you know oh we just kind of walked up on stage and started playing music kind of scene it, 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 <laughs> it's part of our character to not buy into that as much yeah. you know and so I got to ask you about one song that was released more recently, and I still love the video and the song, and that is "This Town Needs a Fire." Okay, yeah, I like the video. I love the video; <laughs> it's pretty great. And so, why? What? Because to me, that song is as perfect for today as it was all the years ago. It's so good. There are a lot of Rick's lyrics that just are like. <laughs> you can call them up today and go, oh, my God, are you talking about the news exactly, right now? Exactly, yes. Either, prescient, either, either you're prescient or, you know, it's just the time is just cyclical. We're just, we're, the news cycle is cyclical. That's right. why they call it a cycle. Sorry, go on. Talk about how <laughs> needs a fire. I don't know what to say about it. I, I, I um, what, what questions do you how have do you, for me about it? Yeah. Well, I just want to hear it because to me, I thought the same thing is just such a today's song written many years ago. And so how did you go about doing that? And how did you do it? Boy, I don't remember. It's been 20 years. That song's 20 years old. Um, <laughs> terrifying. Now the video and it. everything is so, is so good. And so today, you know, I just, just go back and listen to it. It's really. It's today's song. Just telling you. Well, I think that's part of the problem. I think I think that's kind of what things are. What's happening today is, you know, people are realizing, and I feel like I've been realizing this for thirty years, right? In, in terms <laughs> of race in America, in terms of economic disparity, all that kind of stuff that's been around and been there and been in front of us for 30, 40, or 100, oh, yeah, 400 yeah, years, yeah. right? Yeah. It's just sometimes we don't pay attention. And, and so I feel like I've, I've been paying attention to maybe it's just that I'm, I'm just always complaining about this stuff. And now there's just a moment where, um, because, uh, we previously, a lot of us were comfortable and now we've been put into, uh, discomfort and all of a sudden we're realizing, oh wait, things aren't as great as they seem or as solid right. as they seem, or we didn't make as much progress as we thought we did. Right. Exactly. And, and so when you're a critical person, you know, a social critic, I think it's more like, oh, you're, you're always kind of like that. Right. <laughs> and, and so it's just a matter of when people come around and, and, uh, you sync up. And so I think that's what's going on. I, I, I feel like whatever I was complaining about um, in 1990 and 2000 and 2010 and 2020, uh, there, there's a lot of common themes. Right. Um, and it's a matter of whether or not we're all sort of collectively paying attention or I'm, I'm paying attention, right? Yes. And so let's also make sure we talk about Rose's forthcoming book. What is the story with that? 
Well, I'm down from a high of 107,000 words to 97,000 okay, words. Okay, good. It's supposed to be between 70 and 80,000, so I'm working on chipping away. Uh, and it's gone through many different reviewers, and they all had different ideas of, of what was important in the book. So, Right. Well, what was the genesis of it? <laughs> the genesis of it was, I, I, are you the one who told me to start writing tour reports? I don't know. I let's, don't remember. let's just say let's say let's say yes to that. Okay. okay. So I was thinking yes. in 1995, we were we were we had a web page, and I remember thinking, band web pages are so boring. They're they're just you know some company made them. They asked who the who the members of the bands were and what their favorite you know animal was and what their favorite right. food is, and, that, <laughs> yes. and they put it up there. They got their four thousand or twenty thousand dollars, and then went on to the next band. And then you could go look at that that you know website if you wanted, but it was stagnant. Right. So back in 1995, I remember like racking my brain, like, well, how can we make ours change all the time so people will keep coming back? You know, how can we do that? And and I think I realized that writing a, a you know a tour diary and putting it up every single day uh, of what happened on tour, just like a couple of paragraphs, would be useful and would be interesting. And it, it turned out it was interesting and useful for people. Yes. And I've always been a not a good writer. I've never been a good writer. I was I was not. I you know I never got high, you know I didn't get the A pluses in English. I just got you know A's. Whereas you know Rick was <laughs> Rick was in the advanced English classes. My English teacher hated me. So um, so I'm not a good writer. But after repeated like, like, you know, spending 15 minutes to an hour every day just kind of writing every day for years and years and years, I think made me able to write more. So this is a, this is a plug for, you know, if you want to, you want to get good at something, just do it a little bit over and That's over and over. Do it. That's what, no do doubt. It. Yeah. No doubt. So the, the book is, you know, people kept going, oh, I love your tour reports. You should make a book out of them. And every single, Every single person who's ever picked up a guitar now has written a book. <laughs> so, yes, except for you, Rick. Yes. Um, um, but it's, uh, it's going to be out on University of Illinois Press, so it's an academic publisher. So, so, there's, so far, it's, it's, yeah. it's not just going to be a, a reprint of your tour reports. It's going right. to be a little more yeah. kind of bridging the gap between. Not, not really, it's not going to be an academic, full-on like academic um, book, but it's not going to be a full-on just, oh, here's my tour reports. It's, it's going to be an, I think... From just being around while you're talking about it and thinking it through, I think it's going to be a really interesting. I'm going to I'm going to just explain what Rose's book is about. Please, mansplaining here. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. But it, I, I I think what's well because we were just talking about you 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 had mentioned just the other day that you you hadn't talked much about the recording, but it's like well for you, the tour reports, the live performance, um, being a woman. In, in an indie rock band or being a rock, in a, in a, in a, a woman in a rock band, those, that's your perspective. You have interesting thoughts about it, interesting experiences. And so that's kind of what the book is. It's, it's going to be a really kind of wide ranging examination of then my life boob on got the road. In, my boob got in the way while I tried to play the bass. <laughs> So yeah, no. Well, I, you're you're part yeah. of you know you talk about your sisterhood you know of bass players. No, I would be remiss if I did not mention Heidi and yes. uh, um, yes. and Barb. Barb, my yes. my bass sister, sure. and Candace. Yeah, from Walt Mink. Yeah, Candace from Walt Mink, and and we're the bass sisterhood, and that's the first T-shirt <laughs> I should make. Part of our, it really yeah. is. Yeah, Definitely. yeah. So they were they were inspirational. I love them. I heard your um, your your um, show with Heidi, and yes. I just absolutely love her. And I was thinking, after listening to that, I was like, "What do you need to interview us for?" Because all they all they did was talk <laughs> about uh, poster children, this poster children, that. We love poster children, but we love we love Mercy Rule, Domestica, yeah, you. Nightmares. It's the all first, the same thing. The first female bass player I ever heard about um, was Heidi. I we were standing outside House of Chin. And and people were talking about different bands that had come through. Tad had just come through, and I had missed the show. People were like, did you see Tad? He was so big. It was like a, a, a Northwest. Right. One, oh, one yeah. Of, one of the pop bands, right? And then, then somebody said, did you see Mercy? What was it 13 Nightmares? Probably 13 time? Nightmares. Probably, yeah, did yeah. you see 13 Nightmares? And I was like, no, what's that? And they were like, there was, there was this person on the bass. 
She was unbelievable. She, she, you know, she sang incredibly. She moved on the stage. I've never seen anything like it before. And I was like, oh, a girl could do that. I need to try to do that too. That's, I, I'll bet I can do that too. And that, you know, I heard Heidi talking about how she wanted to, you know, inspire people to create. And, and she did that to me. And I'm, well, that's so great to, to hear because, I, yeah, I say that. I just think <laughs> that time, you know, because there were, you know, there was Kim Deal and Kim Gordon, but you guys just made it so much bigger and you guys rocked so much. No doubt about it. Yeah, I didn't, I, I never, Kim Gordon and Kim Deal weren't like inspirational to me at that time. Right. I didn't really know them. I didn't, I, I mean, were the breeders even around that? Yeah, they were. Well, but the, the Pixies were clearly, so. That's what I mean, the Pixies, sorry. I don't even yeah, they remember. Were around. I remember. Okay. Well, I remember, I remember, I maybe had not seen them and right. my friends weren't talking about them at the time. It was my Midwest based sisters. And I, you know, Kim right. Deal is from Akron, right? Or, but she, at the time, they were all Boston y. Right or they were all right. Cambridge. <laughs> yes, so I'm not that, taking anything away from that because you guys, between you guys and Barb and Colleen from the Zuzu's Petals, it was a it was a it was a cool team to be on and and listen to you guys rock, no doubt about mm. it. Thank you. And then of course we don't speak of women as being different than men, and so exactly. We'll, we'll just, just, <laughs> it's it's so problematic to write about about that. It's just so terrible because I don't want to be thought of as something less than a man or something different than a man. It's so, so problematic. Oh, yeah. It well, still is. The book still is. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's, that's what will make your book interesting is because you, you struggled with all of that. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be great. I can't read to read it. No doubt about it. And so yeah, I've just really enjoyed having both you guys on and thank you for coming. Thank you. Thanks. All right. This was great. DaleWileyShow.com. It wouldn't be the weekend without Travis Hughes. DaleWileyShow.com. I'm, I'm good. Well, that's good. What is your plans for the weekend? Uh, so far, nothing really, buddy. Really? Well, any. Go anywhere or see anybody? Your friends coming over? No. Okay. Well, so what is the latest on the COVID? It's it is spreading like wildfire. And I just want to tell everybody out there, please, please be careful. Please do not open the schools. Wear your mask and wash your hands. It's no fun. You're wanting to say this to Governor Parson, too, right? Yeah. Definitely need to tell him of that. Any other messages about that? Any other messages for the, for the podcast? I mean, I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, is this. Be very careful uh, who you're around. Please don't get in big crowds. Stay home. You can wear your mask. It's very All important. Right. That is so good. That's such good information, Travis. And once again, thank you. I believe this is our 15th visit. Yep. All right, man. I'll talk to you next week. All right. See you then. Bye. DaleWileyShow.com.